Welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor, where life, sports, and medicine intersect. I'm your host, Dr. Derek Burgess. And I think it's so important to share stories. That's my podcast, Life Doctor's podcast, and your podcast, right? You're sharing these stories where we have in our head that there's this cookie cutter experience. Some people don't know about Xavier and the incredible pathway that they provide. And then some people think because they didn't go to Xavier, then there's no way they're going to make it. And then they hear somebody like me that just bounced around and, and <laughs> you know, landed heads up. So here I am. So you yeah. can make it too. Welcome back to another episode, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming back to join us again this week. Uh, the last two episodes, I've done solo episodes and, you know, now I'm back on track with interviewing and I have a very interesting guest for you today with Dr. Stephen Bradley. Um, he is a anesthesiologist by training for the U.S. Navy. One interesting part about his story is that he definitely did not take the common route to medical school. Or well, one misconception for people who want to go into medicine is that you have to either, when you go to undergraduate major in one of the sciences, usually biology or chemistry, and be a pre-medical student and take certain coursework to be able to finally get into medical school. But he definitely took a serendipitous route, uh, first majoring in music and then having many different jobs along the way, uh, also thinking about going to physical therapy school uh, before actually deciding to go to medical school. So this is a testament that, you know, if you want to do something, no matter how your your journey starts, it's about how you finish it. So this was a very interesting episode. You know, I look forward to being able to present it to you. Um, we talk about many things in this episode about uh, his career in medicine, contrasting to my path to medicine, uh, medical ethics, and also just how he functions day to day as an anesthesiologist. So without any further ado, we'll get into this episode. Uh, this is going to be a two-part episode, um, and next week we'll talk more about both being podcasters and, you know, kind of feeling our way through this podcasting journey. So without any further ado, let's jump into this episode. All right. Tonight we have Dr. Stephen Bradley. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Bradley. Dr. Burgess, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Dr. Bradley is an anesthesiologist by trade. Um, he is a Navy medical doctor. Um, he's a soon to be husband. He's engaged. He'll tell us a little <laughs> bit more about that. Um, and then, you know, he's also a podcaster. So he is host of the Black Doctor podcast. So he's been in the podcast realm now for about a year and a half himself. So he's my senior. So I have to show him a little respect, you know. But hey, man, glad to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here. You're my senior at uh, Howard. So the respect goes both ways. <laughs> HU, right? How yeah. hard university, right? <laughs> But yeah, man. So glad to have you on the show. Uh, but yeah, so if you could just briefly tell us a little bit about your family. I know you grew up in a. First of all, thanks for your service that you do. Yeah. Um, you know, for our military, and tell us about your background. I know you came from a military family. Yeah, pleasure to serve, um, Stephen. I'm an anesthesiologist and, and currently finishing up a four-year uh, contract with the United States Navy, and that came about, you know, being a Navy brat growing up. My dad you know we moved around every three to four years up and down the east coast mostly and that left a pretty significant impact on my life um seeing my dad deploy for six months at a time and wearing the uniform and kind of knowing you know you're paying a, a service to your country 
Um, you know, I still remember, I think it was like Desert Storm. I was a kid, but we would kind of track the whereabouts of his aircraft carrier as he was navigating through the Gulf. And all that kind of drove and, and instilled that passion within me to follow his footsteps. I think that's, you know, true for most kids that kind of want to uh, grow up and, and be like their dad. And, you know, I didn't have the chance initially coming out of college because I ended up going on to additional training. But while I was in or on the road to medical school, my brother finished college and he did ROTC and ended up joining the service um, a couple of years before I did. So my first year of residency, I swore in and my little brother flew up and he actually uh, swore me into the Navy and my dad was there. So, you know, it's been uh, rewarding to kind of follow the, the, the family trade, if you will, and, and do my years of service. Absolutely. So you said you actually tracked your dad's battleship during the, uh, during the war? Yeah, yeah, we had a, a map, you know, and, and okay. my mom, she'd get the news reports. And when he was able to communicate, you know, it wasn't like every day because back yeah. then they just had um, phones. I mean, I think I was like five or six at the time, but uh, whatever information she had, we put a little thumbtack where his ship was. And, um, you know, I remember all the homecomings and, and you go and, and see everybody come streaming off the ship was always a, a beautiful time to think about. Sure. I guess that's different. I'm thinking modern day now where you have like your GPS. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So let's talk about, so you mentioned that you went to Howard University Medical School, but what did you go to undergraduate? Yeah. So undergrad was a religious school, Pensacola Christian College at the time. I planned on going to the ministry. Um, I studied music or took music lessons and I was going to be a music pastor, so I went to that school to study music ministries. And uh, after the first year, um, you know, my plans kind of shifted and changed. But, you know, that's kind of a part of my story, especially with the other work I do now in medical ethics, because I've had so many different experiences and uh, different cultures that I've been around. I'm able to better relate with a variety of patients. But, you know, it was a very, very restrictive, kind of conservative, religious school. Okay. Um, so you mentioned your music background. What instruments do you play? Yeah, so initially, you know, I played piano. I took classical piano lessons. That's something my parents, um, you know, they grow up um, in, in kind of a lower socioeconomic status, government housing and whatnot, and they always kind of wanted to give their kids a, a better, different life. Part of that was musical instruments. And, you know, around the age seven or eight, you know, they, they made me and my siblings take piano lessons. I, I hated it. And kind of as I got older, I grew to start enjoying uh, piano lessons so much so that, you know, I studied that in college. I always wanted to play other instruments, but piano was kind of the, the thing. My dad told me uh, when I mastered piano, he would get me another instrument. But little did I know, you, you never truly master an instrument. So there's right. that. Right. So piano background, but you also played guitar and some other instruments. So did you formally have piano training and you taught yourself the other ones or how did that work? Exactly. Yeah. So I had about probably six years worth of formal piano lessons and then the one year formal training in college. And then in grad school, I did a, a year of grad school. It's when I picked up bass guitar and then kind of picked up acoustic guitar. I just learned looking at YouTube videos and with piano, you kind of have the, the foundation to learn other, you know, musical instruments. 
and I just kind of segued into these other instruments. So you're essentially a one man band now, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a little lonely at times. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right. So start off as a music major. So one thing, one good lesson with this is that you don't have to be a biology major to make it a medical school, right? So yeah. start off as a music major and then you say, music is not what I want to do. Then what? So I, you know, looked at the remaining three years of college and my school was so kind of restrictive, you know, I didn't really want to spend any extra time at, at the Bible college. So going into a pre-physical therapy uh, degree allowed me to get the prerequisites for medical school and still finish in three years. It was a big decision for me because I didn't have a big background in the sciences. So it was definitely a leap of a leap of faith. And I hedged my bets because if I didn't excel, then I could for sure, you know, kind of go into physical therapy school. And if I did well, then, you know, I could continue on to medical school. And I remember at the time, all the, the prerequisites kind of overlapped. And that year they changed the organic chemistry prerequisite to where pre-physical therapy folks could have taken the one semester nursing organic chemistry instead of the pre-med organic chemistry. And as soon as that happened, you know, everybody else that was pre-physical therapy dropped the pre-med orgo class. I remember sitting there in the front row of class and a teacher looked at me, she's going through the roster. She says, uh, Stephen, you know, you don't have to take this course anymore. You know, you could take this other course. And I said, well, you know, uh, I'm already here. So, you know, I'll, right. I'll, I'll see how, I'll, I'll see how it goes. I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to tell people that, Hey, I actually want to go to medical school. Right. Right. I'm faking um, it. <laughs> so that I remember was a very pivotal point where I took the hard road and ultimately, uh, paid off. That's excellent. That's excellent. So one thing about, and I tell my people that I mentor that you do not, do not have to major in a science, uh, have a science major to go to medical school. You can be a music major. You can be a, you know, law, whatever you want to do. You just have to get the major courses. You have to get the prerequisites so you can sit for the MCAT. So it might be a little longer road or a had to be, you know, take more responsibility to make sure that you're checking those boxes, but you do not have to major in biology pre-med or, you know, chemistry pre-med to make it to medical school. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So on your road to physical therapy, but not really. So you're thinking medical school and did you go straight through into medical school or did you take time off or what? I, I took time off and funny enough, because you're, you're an orthopedic uh, surgeon. Yeah. Um, I actually shadowed at the Andrews Institute. Okay. In Birmingham? Um, in in uh, the Gulf Breeze. The Gulf, Gulf Breeze, Breeze, yeah. That's so part the of physical Mahal. therapy. Yeah. Oh, it was Taj Mahal of orthopedics. Yeah. I didn't know who uh, Dr. Andrews was at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Little did I know. Um, so I, I did the shadowing and realized, you know, I, I really think medical school is where I want to be. I want to be a physician. I want to be an orthopedic surgeon because. I went to the Andrews Institute and I, I met Dr. Andrews, whoever that right. was, and, and right. this sounds right. cool. Yeah. And because I crammed everything into those three years, um, I wasn't going to be able to matriculate directly into medical school. I'm not much of a planner except for when I absolutely have to be. And I remember sitting there as a senior realizing that, what am I doing? You know, everybody that fourth year of college you, it hits you. What am I doing next? Mm -hmm. And I realized, hey, I need to find a gap year. They weren't as popular back then, but I remember sitting down, reading up on stuff. Oh, I should probably take the GRE. 
And then University of South Florida had a one-year program. I was like, okay, well, let me look into that. So I studied over Christmas break, took the GRE, got my score back, put in the application to the master's program. It's a one-year master's of, an, uh, of science and, and anatomy. And after finishing college in 2009, I went down to Tampa and did a one-year program to get the master's. It was kind of the first year of medical school, and I was applying to medical school during that program. So was it similar to like a post-bac? It, it was a post-bac, yeah. Okay, it was a post-bac. Got you, got you. Okay. So did you get the letter of recommendation from Dr. Andrews? I, I did not. You know, he, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, he didn't yeah. even know I, I was there. Oh, really? I see. I got you. I got you. All right. So now you come down, you're ready to apply for medical school. How did that process go for you? Man, you know, it was a, you know, it was a rough road. I didn't have a lot of mentorship. I'm also not somebody that seeks out mentorship. It's a, it's a flaw of mine. Um, sometimes I just have to do things the hard way and make my own mistakes. And, you know, I'll take your word for it, but I got to see it for myself. Yeah, it works for better or for worse, usually for worse, but that's mm-hmm. something that I, I deal with. Um, at, at key points, though, you know, the good Lord looks out for babies and fools, and he puts yeah. some folks in my life that were able to steer me in the right direction. I had a great cohort of friends in that master's program. I got to shout out my friend Love, L-U-V. Um, he's finishing up colorectal surgery fellowship. I was so kind of lost and didn't know what to do and overwhelmed with the applications process. I didn't even have a picture to put into uh, AMCAST. And Love, he took pictures on the side. He's, you know, photography enthusiast. And he came to my apartment. I stood up against a white wall. He shot my picture. And because of that little nudge, I was able to finish my application. You know, so it was, uh, I was at a very fragile point where one or two things could have derailed my entire uh, pathway. But friends were at the appropriate points in time to, to really push me forward. So I want to kind of contrast our paths because I went to Xavier University, Louisiana. So I went to a undergraduate that was very regimented if you wanted to go to medical school. And they started you out as a freshman. You start having these pre-med meetings that you go to even as a freshman. And they say, okay, this is how you write a personal statement. This is what you should be doing the first summer of your undergraduate. You need to go to a program. You need to go to a summer enrichment program. You need to do research. So I went to a school where I was pretty much baby step, right? And you had the complete opposite experience yeah. where, you know, like you said, you start off music and then you say physical therapy and now you're in this post back. What do I do? Okay, I'm, I want to fill out the application. How many letters of recommendation? You're just figuring out on the fly, right? So that's totally different. And one thing I say, it was very valuable. If I didn't have that structure, I wouldn't be sitting right here today because I needed every little piece of help that I could get, right? But you fought through it. (laughs) and Man, I needed all the help I could get too. (laughs) I hear you, I hear you. But I mean, now you have this experience to share with people and it helps a lot, right? And that's part of the mentorship. And that's why you're a good mentor because you had to figure out everything on your own and like, whoa, 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 just sit down for a second, chill out. You need to do this, this, and this. And that really helps somebody. And I think it's so important to share stories. That's my podcast, Black Doctors Podcast, and your podcast, right? You're sharing these stories where we have in our head that there's this cookie cutter experience. Some Mm -hmm. people don't know about Xavier and the incredible pathway that they provide. 
And then some people think because they didn't go to Xavier, then there's no way they're going to make it. And then they hear somebody like me that just bounced around and, and <laughs> you know, landed heads up. So here I am. So you right. can make it too. Right, right. So, you know, I heard your story when you were on uh, Docs Outside the Box with Dr. Nee Darko. And tell us about your first official job that you had in the hospital. And it wasn't in the surgery suite, right? <laughs> yeah, shout out to Dr. Darko, who got me into podcasting, Yeah, uh, for sure. So my first job, uh, I mean, because I've had a plethora of jobs. I think my first job ever, I was a ranch hand down in Florida. I mean, you know, Florida people are a little different. My dad retired in Florida, so I don't really claim Florida, but by default, I guess I'm a Floridian. And uh, my first job was on a, on a ranch, so I worked construction. That was to pay for band camp. That's a whole nother story. Yeah. And then uh, I started doing high voltage electrical work. Well, before that, I finished my first uh, semester of college, uh, or second semester of college, came back for the summer and started at Subway. I was a sandwich artist. <laughs> and I made it there for about a month. And the reason I left was because after like three weeks, they took gave me a test on how to make the sandwiches. And the test was going to dictate what raise I got. And I think the maximum raise I could get was like 45 cents or something like that. Yeah. So this lady gave me the test, you know, how you put meat on a sandwich. And I'm like, okay, I'm in college. I got a whole year of college. Nobody else in this store went to college. <laughs> like, I'm going to ace this test. What, what is yeah. this test? Bro, she gave me a 20 cent raise. <laughs> I said, you put too I, much meat on it. You are I put too, too much, too <laughs> She graded me so hard yeah. and she she shortchanged me like 20 something cents. I said, you yeah. know what? No, nah, I can't, I can't do Subway. So did you um, not so, follow the turkey? Or what did you do? What did you do at all? I mean, it was like a speed thing. And then, yeah, you're right. I put too much meat on. They weighed it and <laughs> it was over. And I think she was a hater, to be honest. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> so then I ended up doing this construction, uh, high voltage electrical work at Shans Hospital in Jacksonville. And, you know, I'd go in about 530 every morning. I, that's when I started drinking black coffee because all these other big construction workers would drink black coffee and didn't have any creamer. I'm like, all right, well, I got to be one more of <laughs> <Whatever> guys. <laughs> Uh, put some hair on my chest, and then I I go down to the basement of the hospital, and you know the floors are all concrete. There's big uh, gray transformers laying around, all this electrical uh, equipment and hardware. But my job would be to go to the floor in the sub in the basement, pull up a grate, and then climb down a ladder into the sub basement. So I put on waders like I was fly fishing, but I'd be walking around in muddy water underneath Shan's hospital. And they were like blue and red crawfish down there. It was uh, kind of just sewage water. And I would run electrical conduit underneath the hospital. So I did that for the entire summer. Um, and I was around like thousands and thousands of volts of electricity. I think I almost died once. I would fall asleep standing up because I was working so many hours. <laughs> um, but it was, it was definitely an experience. But being in the hospital, that was the first time I was around medical personnel. And we went and changed some light fixtures in somebody's office. And they had all their diplomas on the wall. And I'm like, yo, like, this is dope. They got air conditioning. Um, and one of the construction was, workers. I was electrical with. wires, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. One, one of the electrical workers, or one of the uh, guys I was with, he's like, man, if I did it all over again, I would be a doctor. And uh, I was like, all right, let me look into that, because this ain't it. Right. Yeah, now that's an awesome story, man. That's a definitely an awesome story. So you go from the bottom of the basement, but you still decided to work in the basement, right? You still decided to do surgery. <laughs> right. True, true. Couldn't get yeah. away from uh, the roots. Right, right. So tell us about, number one, so you're an anesthesiologist. So tell my listeners that are not familiar with medicine, what does an anesthesiologist do? 
other than cancel orthopedic cases. <laughs> oh, oh man, we can't cancel too many. We don't get paid, but uh, you're right. You're right. The anesthesiologist is a physician who has specialized in in the field. We complete four years of medical school and then four years of anesthesiology residency, and we are specialists in anesthesia, which is keeping patients safe and comfortable during their surgery. We're also experts in critical care medicine as well as pain management, and we do. We're pretty much everywhere in the hospital taking care of patients from the youngest, you know, newborn patients, uh, pediatrics to, you know, the hundred year old person that's fractured their hip and need you to, to put them back together. We're also in labor and delivery. You know, we do epidurals to ease the pains of labor. Um, we work in intensive care units. We do nerve blocks and all types of other procedures. We're responding to traumas as well when they come in and uh, even, you know, doing heart transplants, anesthesia for heart transplants, lung transplants, all of those cases were there to ensure patients are comfortable and safe and uh, kind of protect them from uh, the orthopedic surgeries like the, the bang away with your hammers and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So you mentioned a lot of things that can go on in the course of a day. So you can have a very intense day, you know, you can have a very laid back day, but certain times you're going to be, uh, need to be in the OR, you need to be in the ICU, you need to be and labor and delivery. So that can be very rigorous and very stressful. Um, what is your, as far as how many shifts do you do in a month? Do you work shifts? Are you seven on, seven off? Or what's your, your schedule look like? Yeah, so currently in the, the military and each facility, that's the beautiful thing about anesthesia is it's such a variable field. You can get a job with almost whatever schedule you want. But for me, I typically work five days a week. Um, within that is about four call shifts a month where I have to stay overnight in the hospital. Um, I go in at, now like today I went in at six because we had a meeting to kind of review the residents and their progress. Um, but any given day of the week, I was in the operating room Monday doing some neurosurgery cases with the resident. Uh, the next day I was working on the acute pain service doing nerve blocks. Tomorrow I am gonna be running the operating room kind of managing the add-on cases, hopefully not canceling any cases. <laughs> um, and then the next day I might be on labor and delivery, and then I might come in in the afternoon to cover a night shift. All right. So you mentioned residents. So you're also, you're teaching young physicians how to do your job, correct? Absolutely. I'm an associate professor, uh, sorry, an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the Uniform Services University of Health Science. And I have several residents a year. Our program has uh, six residents a year and I'm involved in their education. Absolutely. So that keeps you on your toes as well, because you have to be abreast of the latest research or, you know, what's the new techniques so you can pass that on. So that's great. Yeah. Now, you also do work in medical ethics. What was that training? Was that something that you picked up along in undergraduate or is that a graduate program? Yeah. So coming out of residency my last year, this is what I say to people looking into residency programs. There's often other opportunities depending on where you go. Sure, you want to become an orthopedic surgeon or an internal medicine physician, but as you're looking at programs, some programs have master's programs in uh, medical education or uh, public policy, or you can get an MPH or an MBA. Uh, University of Chicago has the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. In my fourth year of residency, I did the fellowship program concurrently and that was a one-month uh, didactics where 
every day of the month, I would go in and we'd have sessions with philosophers and uh, lawyers and social workers and other physicians. And we would talk about different tenets of medical ethics and how we would respond. And over the course of a year, we would cover the consult service as well as have uh, weekly grand rounds where different departments would present ethical conundrums that they had. So the pediatrics folks would talk about problems in the pediatrics world and all the adult folks would freak out and be like, oh, you guys are crazy. And then the surgeons would present their complex cases and the internal medicine folks would be lost. And then, you know, nobody really presented from anesthesia. I was the only anesthesiologist, you know, around. Um, but we would we were able to get a different perspective from everybody else in that cohort. There's about 20 of us from social workers to nurses to residents and different specialties to attendings that came in for the fellowship. So we were able to kind of learn and grow together and learn about how do we uh, run these family meetings, how do we communicate and ensure that the uh, patients are, are getting what's best for them. And, and it was at that point that my background, being you know a, a Navy brat who's moved every three to four years, um, being somebody that went to a religious school and has that background, and then went on for a year at a state school, and then went to four years at a HBCU and was now at um, a, a private medical center. All of that kind of coalesced and has affected my worldview to where I can relate with a lot of people and understand where they're coming from. Now, that's excellent because it would be great for all physicians to have ethics training. But, you know, many times we're looking for the ethics committee or whoever at the hospital. And when you really need them, <laughs> it's the weekend, right? It's yep, 11 yep. o'clock on a Saturday night. And you're like, okay, it'll be Monday morning before I can get this question answered. Um, but that's great training. And I'd like to just run a, a case scenario by you to to kind of get your expert opinion on it, right? So that's something that we see frequently in orthopedics. So you have, you know, like we mentioned, you might have a 9,500 year old hip fracture patient, right? Who has a diagnosis of dementia. You mm -hmm. walk in the room and they're like, hey, Dr. Burgess, how you doing? You ask them, where do you live? Oh, I live, give you their address. And you're like, hold on, they got a, they have a diagnosis of dementia, but this person's carrying on a great conversation with me. And, you know, but they, they're diagnosed with dementia. They have a family member who is a power of attorney. And you say, hey, you have a broken hip. Do you want your hip fixed? No, I don't want my hip fixed. But they're not, not the power of attorney. Their daughter is power of attorney. And daughter says, absolutely, we won't want the hip fixed. You know, that's something that we run into actually quite frequently in surgery. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, a lot to unpack and definitely a common scenario. So what yeah. you're assessing here is the patient's capacity to make medical decisions. Yeah. So the dementia, depending on their formal diagnosis, it waxes and wanes. We know about sundowning where, you know, who knows, they're going to be on Mars by the time it's six o'clock at night. Right. And depending on when you catch them, you may have a, a better conversation. It's important to assess two things. Number one, you should definitely have that um, medical decision maker that's readily involved. And their role is to say, you know, what would grandma, what were her wishes beforehand? You kind of know her as her power of attorney, her spouse, her niece, nephew, daughter, son. What would she want um, from this? And then regarding grandma's capacity, does she understand the risk benefits ratio of having this surgery or not? 
if she was walking around the mall and um, she thinks she's going to be able to walk around the mall without getting her hip fixed, that's one thing versus if she was bed bound already, um, you know, she may maybe has some other medical conditions where she may be may not want um, aggressive treatment. Um, that's another issue. Um, so one, does she have the capacity to understand what decision that he or she is making right now? And if not, have a chat with the medical decision maker. Hey, is this in line with their wishes? Um, yes or no, kind of tease that out. And then there's the conversation of, you know, how aggressive is there a, a less invasive way to perform the surgery? Is there a less invasive uh, mode of anesthesia? So you involve other members of the care team to have that conversation. Um, and if they're adamantly refusing, you know, then, then it's, it's tact. Once you've determined we are going to go forward because it's in this person's best interest and it's in line with their overall um, goals of care stated last time they were normal, you know, how do you go about that? Whether they may require some sedation or maybe that person requires a more paternalistic approach or says, hey, we're going to take you down to the operating room and, and fix your hip and we are going to do this. And then maybe they're like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll go along with it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we obviously don't want to fight people and wrestle them down to the operating room, but that's kind of the the art in how sure. we have them um, kind of comply if this is in their best wishes and in line with their previously stated goals of care. Yeah, you know, that's excellent. And I'd imagine daily you probably use that background and the training that you have in medical ethics, probably even when you're not aware that you're using it. So, yeah, yeah. I try to speak up for folks and advocate. Like I know we all know what, how it feels, especially being uh, underrepresented minorities. Mm -hmm. We know how it feels to be ignored. We know how it feels to see patients that aren't heard and listened to. So I do my best being that I'm in this position, quote unquote, of power to advocate for patients, for residents, for operating room nurses, whoever feels that they need to say something. I'm there to say, hey, guys, there's a concern. Let's talk yeah. about it. Let's hash this out. We will end part one uh, right here, and we'll pick up next week uh, talking about our journey and podcasting. But if you enjoyed this episode or if this show has been giving you value, you know, I'd appreciate your feedback. Um, I appreciate you going on to Apple Podcasts, giving me a five-star review because that helps this show grow and it helps it be more visible for other people to be able to uh, find this podcast and be able to download it and listen to it. So once again, for all the listeners, I really appreciate you. I really appreciate all the feedback. And until next week, be safe and take care of yourself and your loved ones. Peace.